This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 251st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this is now but one of three podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters podcast network. The others being It Happened in Hollywood, on which Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope take deep dives into major pop culture moments in Hollywood history, and Behind the Screen, featuring Carolyn Giardina's conversations with artists who work behind the scenes in the business. Be sure to subscribe to all three podcasts today. My guest today is one of the most multi-talented stars in showbiz history, an Australian man of Hollywood films and Broadway theater who is the living embodiment of the triple threat. He sings, he dances, and he acts all incredibly well and is just as at home in a superhero movie as he is in a jukebox musical. You might even call him, well, the greatest showman of his generation. I'm talking, of course, about Hugh Jackman. Jackman shot to international fame as the mutant superhero Wolverine in the 2000 comic book film adaptation X-Men, returning to that character eight more times over the next 17 years. No actor has played the same superhero character in more films or over as long a time span. Remarkably, Jackman has been hugely prolific outside of that franchise as well, and the vast majority of what he has touched has been well-received. He has starred in not just dozens of films spanning the spectrum of genres, but also four Broadway productions, one a musical, two plays, and a special concert as well, which led the New York Times to call him, quote, the most adored performer on Broadway, close quote, and to write, quote, Mr. Jackman is a glorious dinosaur among live entertainers of the 21st century, an honest-to-gosh, old-fashioned matinee idol who connects to his audiences without a hint of contempt for them or for himself, close quote. He anchored one Best Picture Oscar nominee, 2012's Les Miserables, and 16 films that reached number one at the box office, nine X-Men films, plus 2001's Swordfish, 2004's Van Helsing, 2006's Happy Feet and The Prestige, 2011's Real Steel, 2013's Prisoners, and 2015's Chappie. He hosted the Tonys four times in 2003, 4, 5, and 14, and the Oscars once in 2009. He won a Golden Globe, a Tony, a Special Tony, and an Emmy for his hosting of the Tonys, and also garnered Oscar and Grammy nominations. He was the main voice on a soundtrack, 2017's The Greatest Showman, that topped the album charts in the U.S. for two weeks 
and was an even bigger hit in the UK, where it was the year's best-selling album of any sort and the album with the longest run atop the charts in a half century. And there's more where that came from. He just announced a world tour as part of which he will be singing songs with which he's closely associated in stadiums and arenas all over the globe. Which brings us to the present. Now, just months after turning 50, Jackman is winning some of the best notices of his career for the first film in which he has ever played a real living person. Jason Reitman's The Front Runner, in which he portrays the former presidential candidate, Gary Hart. The film premiered at the Telluride Film Festival in August, played the Toronto, London, and Chicago film festivals thereafter, and was released by Sony on November 6th. It has been expanding into a greater number of theaters each week, and Jackman has been accruing awards buzz along the way. Over the course of our conversation at his publicist's New York offices, Jackman and I discussed all of the above, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the Westin Times Square in Midtown Manhattan by Christina Costantini and Darren Foster, the co-directors of one of this year's most outstanding documentary features, Science Fair. The film, which chronicles the lives of nine high school students in their quest to compete and win at the International Science and Engineering Fair, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival back in January and won audience awards both at Sundance and at South by Southwest, en route to being acquired, released, and Oscar-qualified by National Geographic Films. It is one of my favorite films of 2018, documentary or otherwise, and so it's a great treat to have its filmmakers here with me. Darren and Christina, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed getting to spend a little time with you guys at a couple film festivals, Toronto and Savannah, but I still have questions about your backgrounds and, and some of how this film came together. So I guess to begin with, how did you two first come to know each other and work together? The truth is, I am a, well, we're both investigative journalists, which is much different than this movie. Yes. This movie's very happy and, and has none of our prior sad, serious subjects that our prior work was about. But I was a fangirl of Darren and his wife, Mariana's work in college. And so they are incredible investigative journalists. She is a brilliant correspondent. And I used to watch in college all of their amazing work of them going around the world and doing crazy, exciting, important stories. And Where were you seeing this? Current TV's program called Vanguard. And so I basically did everything in my power to to get to work with Mariana. And then that's how I met Darren. And we were working on a very sad story together about a drug called fentanyl. And we started talking about this idea. Yes. So that's how it all started. And for you, working with Darren and those projects that you've done together before, that was your first foray into all this stuff? Yeah. I, my first documentary was with Mariana yeah. about sex trafficking. And then my second documentary was about fentanyl. and th But this is our first feature yes. for both of us. So this has been a completely for new sure. experience for Darren and I. And before so the I, short answer is, like, we're both in love with my wife. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mariana Von Zola. She should be here with us. Uh, <laughs> she, she should. should. Be. But uh, before I ask Darren about just sort of your background of how you came to do that stuff with your wife, I just want to ask one other question of Christina, which is why coming out of your own upbringing, which included, which we, we can say science fairs, <laughs> why did you end up on the track to becoming an investigative journalist? What drew you to that? Yeah, this documentary is very personal for me. It's about the International High School Science Fair, which I did during high school, and it totally changed my life, mm -hmm. and it made me who I am, and I'm forever thankful to it. So it's this movie, we say, is like a love letter to the science fair yeah. world. Also, a, a thank you note. I have so much gratitude 
into that world. Investigative journalism, I started as a print reporter, reporting mostly on immigrants and detention centers. And I started in college working for some publications yeah. in New Haven, which I know you know. Uh, yeah. I worked for the YDN, the Yale Daily News. Yeah. I worked for the New Haven Independent. And then I started Mariana and Darren really taught me how to make television. That's great. Yeah. So Darren, you obviously were a little ahead in terms of chronology of getting into this stuff. You know, what led you into this field? Yeah, much like Christina, I started out as a journalist, and yeah. I thought I was going to be a print reporter. I thought I was going to write for magazines and newspapers, and then I met my wife yeah. at journalism school at Columbia, and she basically we went to do a story together, and I was going to do it as a print story, and she was going to do it as TV, and she basically needed a tripod, yeah. and so she handed me the camera, and the next thing <laughs> I knew, like we started working together as a production team. Right. She'd be the correspondent, I would be the shooter-producer, and then we go out, shoot, edit, and everything. So, I mean, I basically did my 10,000 hours at Counter TV. Yes. My wife and I honeymooned in Lebanon during the Israel-Hezbollah war. Yeah. So, like, you know, our whole life was just, like, wrapped up in shooting, producing these stories for, for Current for a long time. But it definitely taught me, like, all the skills that I yeah. have today in terms of just, you know, producing. So you guys, as you've said, these first projects were, in some cases, very dark. Were you just looking for an outlet to do something light and different, or how do you arrive at the idea of doing science fair? Again, we know it's it's in Christina's background, and maybe to some extent there's a connection for Darren, too, which you can share, but it's a pretty big departure from what you've been doing. Definitely. The funny thing is, like, the story for me came out of, a, of an experience of interviewing this clandestine chemist, this guy who just got out of serving 25 years of prison, the, who in the 90s, early 90s, cooked a batch of fentanyl. And so we were doing a story about fentanyl, and I, we tracked this man down because we wanted to hear, you know, about how he got into the, making all, you know, this crazy drug. And in the course of interviewing him, we actually went to Milwaukee, where Christina's from, because that's mm -hmm. where he's on parole right now. And so in the course of interviewing him, he was like, I actually, you know, had a very promising future when I was growing up, I was a very smart kid. I was, you know, really into chemistry. I won the Badger State Science Fair. Oh, and God. so Christina turned to me at that point. And she's like, you know, I also won that fair. And that was the first, <laughs> that was the first I heard that Christina was like playing at science these high fair. levels. You didn't know fair. that. No, her. no. And okay. then she told me, she's like, actually, I have this idea of doing a documentary on this world that I've been sitting on for the last 13 uh, years. Well, and I've been pitching it around. I pitched it as a This American Life. I've been, <laughs> right. So this thing, so it's been, you know, I've always known this world to be really funny and full of life and amazing characters and it really is an embarrassment of riches in terms of characters just narrowing it down to nine was one of the hardest challenges of making the movie but it is totally a departure from what we do and I think that was why it was so exciting because we both have a sense of humor and yeah. we both I think working together closely realized we had like excitement about these quirky subcultures and this was one that I happen to be very passionate about <laughs> so Darren got it right away and you know it's it's been really a joy to depart from our serious yeah. subjects and try a completely different skill. Do you think it's a permanent departure or is this just a blip? <laughs> I think it's taught us some important things yeah. about how we might be able to tell other stories yeah. that are important, yeah. but with some of the skills Science Fair taught us because it's just reached so many people with it being a happy and uplifting, inspiring, yeah. funny movie. We've seen how far that can go. Yeah. Well, one of the things that your prior experiences must have helped with was planning, because this would have required a ton of it in the sense of 
How do you identify who you're going to follow? How do you coordinate following what ended up being, I think you said, nine students all over the world and not just the country for an extended period of time and then also dealing with them when they come together in one place, a lot of them. Still but, have PTSD from the, yeah, the, gonna... that, that week. So. <laughs> At the actual fair. <laughs> but I guess, does it help? At first, did you have a model in mind? Are you looking at a previous doc, whether it's something like Hoop Dreams or Spellbound or something else, and saying this is a sort of roadmap that we can use? Definitely. From the beginning, Christine and I talked about you know the docs that we love that would influence you know science fair, and that included Spellbound, it included King of Kong, which I you yes. know, we both really love, yes. Mad Hot Ballroom Room, which Christine actually reached out to the director and producer of that film. Got we, all their advice. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, very much there was like a roadmap already out there in terms of like great competition docs that involve kids. But we knew going into this like the you know the real big challenge was to be find you know the best characters to illustrate the story and so we spent probably the bulk of our time before we even turned on a camera just like talking to kids and yeah. that included going to on a scouting trip in 2016 to the fair and literally walking the aisles up and down and just you know, scouting we, yeah scouting. we did we did like a heavy metal parking lot of the science right. fair as right. our pitch reel it was amazing <laughs> and it's like really what sold the feature was just like going to the fair and interviewing kids and cutting it together but how did you guys get such an unbelievable batting average here because of the nine <laughs> kids i guess we won't identify how many of them make it to the fair and win because <laughs> yeah, we still if you haven't seen it we want you to see it but let's just say these kids did very well mm-hmm. with their work and i guess to some extent there are people that repeat year after year of being very good but some of these kids you're finding abroad who were not previously on the radar how did you do that well, I mean, definitely Christina's experience, you know, was a roadmap for us as well. I mean, like she had an inside track on like how this whole process works because science fair is not just about the science, it's about the presentation skills. It's about a lot of different things. And so Christina understood sort of what a powerful project would be. And so when we went about casting, we obviously wanted to find kids that had strong projects and were going to be strong contenders. And so that included Kashfia, who actually this was going back for the third time. So we knew mm-hmm. that she was, you know, had a good chance of placing. We didn't realize that she was going to maybe do as well as she may yes. or may not have yes. done. No spoilers yes. here. <laughs> and, you know, likewise, you know, like the schools from DuPont Manual in Kentucky is another perennial powerhouse. Yes. And so we knew the kids from that school could you know, potentially do well. So we were always placing bets. Yeah, and- science fair has not changed much in the last 12 years. It's almost (laughs) identical to how it was when I competed. And I think that that helped, certainly. But, you know, we were not looking for, I mean, this is a movie about science, but it's mostly about human stories. And so we were really looking for these stories that resonated with us. And so Kashfia is, you know, one of the only Muslim girls in her South Dakota high school, and she doesn't have very much support for her project or for science at all. And the moment we learned that her mentor was the head football coach, it was like this (laughs) This amazing irony. Yeah, Yeah, that we... So we were looking for these human stories, and many of them have these interesting twists. And so that's how we did the casting. We cast a wider net than what you actually made it into the movie. Mm -hmm. So some of the kids that we shot a lot with actually are not in the movie. But a lot of it was just good luck. I mean, that is part of it. So logistically, though, how does this work when you have that many tracks of progression towards the science fair going on in so many different places? You guys, even if you split up, can only be in two geographic regions, obviously. So are you having to delegate to other people or how does this work? Yeah. So, I mean, we we basically, it was Christine or I, or both of us were at every single shoot with every single kid. Um, 
and you know basically doing their we we call them the background packages which is like where they're from right. and shooting with them and you know up to, through the qualifying fair you know we basically went to every one of these you know kids hometowns and we we shot with them through this first sort of hoop that they have to get through which is the qualifying fair and so you know those were easy because they were just like you know like profile packages of these mm-hmm. kids and that was fairly easy and obviously you know we're still hoping that they qualify and once they qualified yeah. you know then we knew we, we were going to be with them for at least you know through ICEF right but then you know when we actually were at ICEF which is the big competition yes. the International yeah. Science and Engineering yeah. Fair yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, you know that was a whole nother challenge because there was actually we only had five people we only had five passes for the event and at that time we were following it for dozen, your crew and for our crew yeah. for our crew and so we basically had five of us covering at that time we were probably following like 12 different kids zone defense or what oh, yeah. big time <laughs> big time yeah. it was nuts and so but this is where the background of like shooter producing yes. like comes in handy because i was shooting and directing and then we had alex simmons who's a guy i worked with for right. years who's also came up as a shooter producer and pete alton our main dp who was right. there every step of the way he's just like a machine right and has do- does everything <laughs> right. yeah. sound shooting like we it was a very bare bones yeah crew. but we were running around like and then myself yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) just let's say there's a aspiring documentary filmmaker who's listening to this and they say this sounds fascinating but on a practical level you guys had previously been doing let's say something for instance with current tv you're an employee of current tv that's presumably paying your salary and you can depend on that when you go off to make a documentary film sometimes it's essentially taking a gamble that somebody's gonna ultimately pay for it when did National Geographic come in on this and how were you guys able to step away from what you'd normally be doing in order to do this? Basically how we got the opportunity to make the film. Was, yeah, was, we got was, was, really lucky. <laughs> yeah, but it was also like Christina had worked for five years at Univision and Fusion. Mm-hmm. Had done great work. My wife, Mariana, had done great work for Fusion. I'd sort of done a couple of pieces with them as well. So they knew us as like a sort of team mm-hmm. that could execute on, you know, difficult stories. But this was definitely a bit of a departure from the stuff we had been doing. Right. Yeah. And But it was like basically Christina going to them and being like, trust us, we can do this. <laughs> And how much time were you asking for, Christina? <laughs> About six months. Six months. Like, yeah. kept growing. It kept. It was just like one or two months. We could definitely shoot it in two months. And then it kept growing and growing and growing until it was a whole year of my time. And yeah. And so two they, years. Two years. <laughs> maybe, and, yeah. But Fusion was the production company for yeah, the documentary. They, yeah, they paid. They paid for it. Paid for it, and which means they, your costs, helping you to live during that period, and just like making it possible. Yeah. Isaac Lee and Keith Suma were really the two people who shepherded this project and let right. it let it happen so and so it wasn't until sundance or even after i think yeah, it was national after. geographic right yes. yeah involved as the so distributor it, yeah, so it, it was basically yeah it was basically like a commission that we had done we yeah. you know like we had done with other projects for yeah. tv we just said like here's the idea here's the budget it was not as easy as and simple as this right, but right, essentially right. and then they contracted our production company muck media to make it and then they gave us a very long leash which was amazing yeah. when we actually made it but the idea was always that we were going to sell the feature to third party because univision you know didn't really have the same distribution networks as you know like a national geographic right. so they're doing it with the same as as you guys the hope that it gets out to the world through a traditional theatrical distributor or streamer i guess maybe exactly. might have been open to but from from their point of view, the reason to do this is that their business model, they want to make programming that is, what, enlightening or – what would be their reason for supporting this? I mean, I think they, they trusted the idea and they wanted to try something new. Yeah. I think it was a risk for them. It would 
you know, one of their first big features and they, you know, they really took a risk. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the vision of like one or two people who believed in it. And yeah. uh, some people thought they were crazy because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not, you know, when you have a cable network and a Spanish language TV channel, yeah. it's not an obvious fit. So no. <laughs> it was yeah. definitely a leap of faith for some people. But then, you know, it went to Sundance and we thought that was the end of the road for us. And we were super excited just for it to get into Sundance. And then it won the Festival Favorite Award. And then we got into South By and we won the Audience yeah. Award. And that all changed the game and national geographic at that point bought the movie and by. has been yeah. like yeah. an amazing partner and they've got it into so many different places that we never thought it'd be it's in three thousand schools in the month That's of november amazing. for free so yeah. it's really we're, we're so lucky well and people you know they hear national geographic and i think some of us who grew up i guess let's say 80s or whenever 90s you think like tigers chasing rhinoceroses <laughs> or something right so then they've really and, and to some extent they still do stuff that's largely about that i mean even last year the documentary jane was terrific and that dealt with her jane goodall's work in the jungle but they're also doing things like this documentary for what reason how do they explain why this fits in the national geographic films model I mean, I think they would say it's, you know, it's science, it's exploration, it's in the DNA of, yeah. of National Geographic, but it's also inspiring. And, you know, for you know, National Geographic is obviously a huge television channel yes. and the documentary films, as, as, as you you know said, is like now expanding. But at the end of the day, it's still this like amazing global brand that has an educational outreach program. And so I thought that I think they just saw the film as an opportunity to you know, to really excite people around the world yep. about something that's like a, a little bit, maybe a little bit different than like, yeah, tigers chasing, you know, <laughs> antelopes or whatever. I think we're just like on two different right, continents yeah, yeah, yeah. right there, but <laughs> we should have watched more National well, Geographic. Yeah, <laughs> but they're also, I guess, you know, great champions of, of just, you know, good teaching and education and schooling. And one of the nice things that you guys, I think, did not expect to be a focus of your documentary, but became that were a few of the teachers, and in particular, Dr. McCullough is one of them who was, I think, has become a star through your film itself. Definitely, yeah. But just, you know, you figured it's going to be about the students, and then how did the teachers or certain teachers emerge as equally interesting characters? Yeah, you know, I think as we started casting all of these characters, we started realizing that their mentors played an important role and, and, and for some of them that was that they were absent and, yeah. you know you see with Robbie who's this kid in West Virginia who's doing incredible prime number theory work his math teacher basically told him that she's not interested in number theory and that he should just focus on his day-to-day schoolwork so th we saw that model right the, the way that our public school systems are failing our kids and and I think is also the case mm -hmm. with Kashria yeah. but then we met the Dr. McCullough's of the world who treat science with the same intensity that the rest of the America treats like high school football. So right. she's really a coach. She drills these kids. She has very high expectations for them and they live up to those high expectations. And, you know, we, like you said, we were looking to make a movie about kids and all of our main characters were going to be kids. And then at the science fair itself, we broke our intended plan because mm -hmm. we were watching Dr. McCullough and she was really just in her element. Yeah. I mean, she was like, when she got hit Tapping the floor, the of that, yeah, <laughs> when she hit the floor, she was right. really like, it was game day for her. And she, we didn't know she had another gear, but she like switched into another right. gear. And so Darren and I, because we had the benefit of having a teeny weeny team, <laughs> right. basically made a game time decision that like Dr. McCullough was our new character and we right. had to follow like 
we changed our plan a little bit that day. I think the second day of the science fair. <laughs> These days, the word uh, propaganda has a certain meaning that people associate as, as being negative, but there could be no better propaganda for the cause of science than to show somebody this movie. And I think in a way that's more needed now than ever, because maybe you can share what has, you know, we all have the sense that science is sort of under attack with the political leadership of the country, but even also at the level of the science fairs themselves. Mm -hmm. What's happened to the science fairs that you guys were covering? ICEF, the International Science Fair, lost its funding. Intel sponsored that competition for years and then announced uh, last year or two years ago, two years ago. Uh, that they were going to discontinue. So the reverse uh, after your one. That yeah, you yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, the last one that they just this past May was the last one that they sponsored. And so they're currently looking for a new sponsor. But then we haven't heard yet if they've got one or not. Yeah. So, so what does that mean? That they're, they're not going to have a science fair? I mean, it definitely is at risk. I mean, and it'd be a shame because, you know, this is. 1,700 kids from 78 different countries. Right. Out of the you know science fair that we you know covered in 2017, there were more than 500 patents that came out of that science mm -hmm. fair. So these kids are doing real science, yeah. and they're having a real impact on our world at a very critical time. You know, Christine and I are always saying that like you know, at a time when our adults are behaving like children, these kids are really yeah. stepping up and, and facing these global challenges in a, in a really inspiring way and, and having a real impact. So I mean. I think it would be a shame to do something like that because not only just a like competition, it's a, it's a wonderful exchange of ideas and it gets these kids excited. It celebrates these kids in a way that they don't often get celebrated, you know, at yeah. home. So I think it's also super important for the kids themselves. I think it's life changing and everybody who's done it um, from, you know, we went back and interviewed these old winners. I was going to say the that was such person. a great thing to put in there because <laughs> it shows that the lifelong effect they can have. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, and this stays with you and it's made everybody who they are. I mean, the first winner, who won in 1942, Dr. Paul Teshin, his son-in-law told me it's like the second thing he says to people when he meets them. It's like, I'm Dr. Paul Teshin, I won the science fair when I was an 18-year-old. Yeah. So. But I mean, it's amazing because like he's had this amazing career. He's right. like, yeah. you know, he's invented like all these right. amazing things for dialysis. dialysis. For dialysis, wow. yeah. And he's like a legend in the, the in dialysis medical field. world. <laughs> but still the most important thing. Have you spent a lot of time there? <laughs> he's a rock star in the dialysis world. <laughs> he is, he is, big time. Big time. Well, congratulations <laughs> to you guys. I mean, it's not often that they're, you know, particularly I feel like this season to find a movie that is both well-made, entertaining, and doesn't leave you feeling like you want to jump out a window. So I, <laughs> I think that we all owe you a thanks for that. And it's exciting to uh, look forward to continuing to follow you guys. So thanks for Thank joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Appreciate it. And now for my interview with Hugh Jackman. All right, Hugh, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Sydney, Australia, 1968. My father was an accountant for Pricewaterhouse, mm -hmm. his entire, now PricewaterhouseCoopers, but yes. his entire life. Didn't work the Oscars though, right? No, and I never, <laughs> I used to say, Dad, why aren't you, I used to watch it every year, he used to roll his eyes, and I used to like, they look exactly like you, and the suit and the briefcase, remember they used to walk on with the briefcase? Well, it turns out though, it can be a dangerous job. Yeah, now no, that we, right. but, Maybe he knew something yeah. we didn't, like, oh no, no, that's right. a career ender. Right. Right. And then but your mom? My mom was a homemaker for many years then she went back to university and mm -hmm. she became an occupational therapist yes i read as much as i could about you to mm. prep for this and went back to some of the articles even you know oklahoma era before oh, wow. everyone knew about you and wow. very interesting stuff but 
One thing I hope you don't mind me asking about, because it just seems you've, you've talked about it before, and it seems like it in some ways shaped you as mm-hmm. much as anything, was something that happened when you were about eight. And it just, yeah. like anyone, would have had a huge impact. Yeah, so mum left when I was eight. So we, we were growing up in Australia. So my parents emigrated from England mm-hmm. with three children. They were Mum was pregnant with the fourth. That's my older brother, Ralph. Yep. And then I was the fifth. So I was born in Australia, but... When I was eight, mum left and went back to live in England. So that was really obviously very traumatic for everybody. And I remember at the time, it was really unusual. I remember like feeling very embarrassed in public places because divorce wasn't as common as it is now, mm-hmm. but you know, it wasn't that unusual. Mm-hmm. But it was very unusual for the mother to leave yes. and for the kids, five of us, to be living with my father so and I remember that feeling but of course it shaped a lot of who I am and I've had to unpack a lot of it well and you've said quote my anger didn't really surface until I was 12 or 13 close quote Mm -hmm. and then I wonder if you can just explain how it did manifest itself you said it was what you now call wolverine rage (laughs) (laughs) no yeah totally I think it was a belief I had a belief that mum was coming back Mm -hmm. and that actually came to fruition so when I was 12 I think Mum came back, so she would come back once a year, and she came back, and her and Dad announced that they were going to get back together. And I was like, ah, all right, that's That's happening. And then that only lasted three weeks. Mm -hmm. And after that, I went off the rails a little bit. I think that was where, you know, I was going through adolescence. Mm -hmm. I was starting to kind of understand, you know, the non-Disneyland version of life (laughs) (laughs) where things don't always necessarily have a happy ending. And, And I just got, I was mad. I was first year of high school, and I remember telling a couple of teachers to F off and things like that. And I just remember being going through a rough patch. Yeah. And so at that point, you were very involved with sports, yeah. right? And rugby, I guess, particularly. You really have done your research. No, though. well, I, it's, I'm it's, impressed it's, by it. It's interesting to go back and, and try to understand how, you know, we all feel like we know you, but then you realize you don't. Right. And so, And I understand that that's not something that there's limits to how much we should or you want us to, um, ju- but just to get a sense of where you come from is interesting. And another thing that I found interesting was the fact that the idea of performance in your life maybe was first introduced by preachers, right? Because you it was a fairly religious upbringing, yes. and so yeah. the first real performers you would have seen would have been, yeah. what, evangelists, right? Yeah, we went to a lot of, I suppose it's called revival meetings, mm-hmm. and we went to a lot of that. I remember going to them a lot as a kid. They were a lot of fun because yeah. generally those things, like church was never fun. It yeah. was sort of old-fashioned, the organ, the choir. Yeah. We did all of that, although it was great for the social life, right, because <laughs> there's always like a youth group or something, right. and camps, and you're going away. That was great. Right. But those re- revival meetings, I remember quite strongly having a feeling, I'm going to I'm taking a stab that I might have been 14 yeah. at the time, we went to one of those big sort of outdoor, there was a tent, yeah. big marquee, and the guy was giving the sermon. There was always rock bands. It was cool. And during the sermon, I had a very strong feeling that I was going to end up on stage. I, like think, I just knew. Do you think it was possible it would be in a religious context? That's what I assumed. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'm going to be one of those guys. Yeah. I'm going to be like a minister or yeah. something at one point. I even actually, I don't think I've told anyone this, but I even did a sermon once at school, our, our school reverend was away and so they allowed they asked two or three students to get up and give the sermon during the school chapel and i remember doing that so which surprises me now yeah yeah yeah. and i would be mortified to think what a 15 year old hugh jackman (laughs) 
said up said in the pulpit at the school, like his advice for life or his interpretation of the Bible. But I remember thinking that's what I'd end up doing. So, and that was very strong in me. Interesting. And in terms of more traditional, you know, kids getting into performance, were you also doing school plays and those kinds yeah. of things? It was all amateur for me. I occasionally sort of would look at, you know, little ads in, in the paper asking for talent and this and that. And when I was at college, I remember going to a modeling agent. A friend mate of mine was a model. He said, you should get a couple of photos done. Yeah. And I got rejected from that. From really? Yeah. I met Peter Chadwick, who runs Chadwick yeah. Agency. It was the biggest agency at the time. Yeah. And I've become friends with him. He goes, mate, the best thing I ever did for you <laughs> <laughs> was turn you down. But I always did it as a hobby. Yes. I think it took me a long time to actually actually have the courage to say I want to do it for a living. Part of that, it sounds like, stems from a little intra-familial spat over the fact that you were getting into dancing, right? Yeah, so I was 11 and a teacher at school said to me, you have talent as a dancer. Mm-hmm. You should go and get classes, but you, th- there's no way to do it at school. And I remember the place was in the city, which is like a 45-minute train ride. And I thought, hey, I'd like to do some dance. I enjoy it. So I, I, I came home and I told this to my dad, who was always like, absolutely. He, yeah. he, education was his thing. Yeah. Really stingy with everything else and very tight. <laughs> if you want the latest out of dance, you're like, yeah, right. you go to hell. But right. if you wanted to play the saxophone or dancing classes, you're in. My brother overheard that. And I remember him saying something like, ah, oh, you sissy, you sissy, or may not have been that kind of word. Right. And I was 10, I think, maybe 11. So I was in fifth grade. And I said, what? And he goes, well, only sissies dance. Yeah, only sissies. And so I didn't dance. I'm the un-Billy Elliot story. Right, and right. I was 18. And apart from being in the odd school musical, I really hadn't danced. Mm-hmm. We went to see 42nd Street. So but that same brother and my dad went to see 42nd Street. And at interval, my brother came up to me and said, you know, I said something really stupid to you a few years ago. You belong up on the stage. And I'm really sorry. Wow. And it wasn't like I had been holding on for seven years, right. I want to dance, but I can't, right. I'd forgotten about it, right. you know? I was like, oh, I was doing lots of other things. Right, right. But I signed up for a dancing class the next day, tap wow. dancing. I know that you've said, you kind of can't help but wonder, I guess, had you had those seven mm-hmm. years, would you have maybe gone professionally into dancing as opposed to what you did do? I guess you just, will not, it's one of those things that you can never know because yeah. those years are so formative for a dancer, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think it's like tennis. Yeah. I remember asking Roger Federer, I said, yeah. he, he was talking Mercury. I think his Mercury's wife started at 11. He said, that's like about the latest you could yeah. possibly start if you're yeah. going to be a professional. So I think it's the same with dancing. There's just so many hours you would have spent. And, and, and yeah, I mean, in that way, I pinch myself as to where I've gotten because I have danced a lot. Mm-hmm. And been, people say to me, you're a dancer. I go, mm, you should ask all the dancers in the shows. With me. I'm always the worst dancer, but I get more attention because you're playing a lead part. Right. The choreographer is always nicer to you. Right. They're always very sweet with me. Great job. And then they're yelling right. at the other dancers. <laughs> they learn it in three seconds flat. Like, Interesting. Yeah, I do wonder sometimes what would have happened. But my life has gone places, Scott, that I never, ever thought possible. There's, there's so many things that way beyond coincidence there's been i feel there has been some guiding hand i don't have the same belief in god that i had when i was 14 or 15 Mm -hmm. but i do still have this feeling of a path there is Mm -hmm. some kind of path Mm -hmm. 
And if you listen to the right signals, you end up in the right place. And so I'm still dancing, you know what I mean? I'm still great. learning. And, and now I've had quite a lot of time off this year. I find myself dancing every single day because I want it. That's I great. love it. Well, I guess, you know, one of the key moments of where things could have gone in either of two very different directions would have been university. You go off and your focus was not drama at all when you started. So what happened, I guess, senior year yep. that shifted things? You had to have 24 points, I remember, mm-hmm. to graduate. Each year was 20. And so I'm in my final year and I count up my majors, my thesis, all of that. I'm up 22 points. I'm like, ah, got to <laughs> find. That two is the smallest right. amount. So I got to find an elective and someone said you should do drama because it's the same teacher. Mm-hmm. He's never done a play. You just turn up. It's a three hour tutorial once a week. That's it. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'm in. Perfect. <laughs> so I turn up the last possible week, which is the fourth week into the semester. Right. So if you turn up the fifth week, you can't qualify. Right. So I turn up the fourth <laughs> week. I find out on the fourth week that they're doing a play for the first time in the history of the course. And I literally have my head down. I'm sitting in the back. But this guy was a Trotskyist. Like, he was really big on everything being equal and egalitarian. So he had the list of the cast next to the class list, which I'm on. And you just drew a line like that. And I got the lead part. And I went up to him in the end of the class. I I begged him. I said, you don't understand. It's my senior. I'm my final year. He goes, I don't care, dude. Just go to some other class. I said, I can't. This is the fourth week. I can't. (laughs) And he goes, yeah, I haven't seen you here. And so he hated me from the beginning, right? right? Because I wasn't taking it seriously. I ended up spending, I'm going to say, 80% of my time on that play. So the alarm bells were ringing for me big time. Like, "Mm, this is not a good sign. If you're spending what is probably 10% of your course and you're spending 80% of your time... This is not good. Mm-hmm. You want to be a journalist, really? Because right. like, that's we, what it was going to be. I was majoring in journalism. Yep. I thought radio journalism, mm-hmm. this is what I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. And we toured it, the play. Mm-hmm. And we went to another school, which was the same course as us. It was like a liberal arts mm-hmm. majoring in communications. But that school was half acting. Mm-hmm. And we were billeted, so we were staying with other students. When the moment I walked into the house of these five or six students in this house in Armadale, I had the strongest feeling that I just wasted three years of my life. I should have been there. So what do I do at that point? I decided in the next week or two that I would just go and do a, I'd do a year. I'll go into journalism eventually. Mm -hmm. I've got my degree. Let me just take a year. And I thought I'll go overseas Mm -hmm. I'll travel Mm -hmm. and I'll go to acting school in England. All right, my mum was there, my right. brother and sisters were there, and I couldn't afford it. So I then auditioned for a course in, and this is one of those coincidences, I auditioned for a course in Sydney called the Actor Centre, mm-hmm. and they were just starting a one-year course called The Journey. Mm-hmm. And it was three days a week, and I didn't get in. And then they called me back and they said, oh, we've got one, someone's dropped out, and there's four of you on the waiting list, so why don't you come in? So I went in. Mm-hmm. And I got it. I got the final spot. And then the next day I get a letter saying I've got the final spot and at the bottom, please bring the check for Mm $3,500 for the first day. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, you see, uh, and and no one here listening will, they'll all think that's so cheap. But in Australia, all of my education, tertiary education Mm -hmm. was all free Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I can't ask my father. I've just finished a degree, right? I can't ask him for three and a half grand. I tore up the piece of paper. I put it in the bin. Wow. And... 
I'm not joking. This is what I mean about that guiding hand. Yeah, the yeah. very next day I got a check from my grandmother, my father's mother's will, who died three months before, for $3,500. That's unbelievable. So I was like, yeah. this is it. But yeah. then I thought, I've got to check with Dad. If that's how you should spend it. Yeah. yeah. And I asked him, and I was genuinely unsure. I thought he might say, acting, no. Spending $3,500, no. Right. Like, say, put it towards something. Right. And he said, I couldn't think of a better way for you to spend mum's money. That's great. Yeah. You knew that story, didn't you? I did, but I I mean, I'm, glad you... <laughs> I'm so impressed. <laughs> but here's, I guess, another place where it could have gone off this trajectory. What was the name of that program? The, the oh, Where the, you went for thirty. The journey. The journey. The journey. So that's separate from what you then right. went and did going off to Western Australian Academy, Academy. of Performing Arts. Right. That's so I, drama school. That's drama school. That's three year. That's a full three year program. And I had the bug, badly. Like right. four months into this course, I was in. I'm reading Uta Hagen, Respect yeah. for Acting. I'm like, okay, this is it. I love this. I'm going to go as deep as I can go. Right. So now you make this full plunge into going off to drama school. But I guess the next dilemma that arises is you start there, and very soon after you have a professional offer, which is in some ways before I went even before. So I was working at a gym, yep. and the wife of Dean Semler, who's the Australian cinematographer who won the Academy Award for Dances with Wolves, yes. amongst many other things, she meets me. This is another crazy story. <laughs> I'm showing her around the gym, and I'm signing her up for a 3, 6, or 12 month <laughs> membership, and she goes, I'm a white witch, and you're going to be a massive international star, movie star. And I was like, okay, she's <laughs> off the reservation. Let's make sure we sign her down for a 12-month membership right, now. Right, right. Anyway, she said, I want you to meet my husband. I want you to meet my agent. And my first headshot was shot by Dean Semler. Wow. And she introduced my agent, and she sent me out on a general casting call for a TV show called Neighbours, which was... Yeah, soap opera. That's kind of soap opera, but it's seven o'clock at night every night. So I think Margot Robbie eventually did that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, lo loads yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parliament, oh, Guy Pierce, you yeah. name it. Many, many people have done this. So I went for the audition and I got the part, and I got a two-year contract. Mm -hmm. I said, "Oh, so do I sign the contract? What I'm in. Let's go." Yeah. <laughs> and I said, "Oh, they'll send the contract." Mm -hmm. The contract didn't come for a month or two, and in the meantime, I'm like, "Look, I've always wanted to audition." for the academy i know i'm going to do neighbors but let me just let me audition anyway i audition on the friday mm -hmm. the day before the audition i get the contract the contract comes in i'm like well i'm still going to go and do my audition i do the audition i kind of know it went well you feel it and i went up to the panel afters i waited till everyone left and i went up to dean carey who was someone i, I knew from the actor center who was also the head of drama there and i said this is going to sound really presumptuous and this was in Sydney, which was the first stop on their nation tour for mm -hmm. auditioning. I said, I just got an offer to be on Neighbours for two years. I've got to sign that on Monday. And I know you've got many other places, but I, if you can let me know, I've got a spot, which I presume you can't, mm -hmm. but if you can, that will influence my decision. Mm -hmm. I get a call the next morning saying we've offered you a spot. Wow. So I had, for me, a horrible weekend. Right. It's a great thing to have choice. Right? Every actor would be like, are you kidding? That's awesome. Right, right. But I've always felt a weird burden with those kinds of choices going back, I think, to my religious upbringing. Yes. There's so much stuff 
in the Bible about following the path, following God's will, the seed cast on, do you land on fertile ground or do you land on the pathway? Does it, the the parable of the talents? There's so much of this in my psyche Mm -hmm. that I'm like, please don't make the wrong decision. So I asked my father, I said, dad, who's not an advice giver. (laughs) I mean, by philosophy. Right, right. And I said to him, I really need your help. I don't know what to do. I can see the benefits of both. Because the down, let's just talk it through. The downside of doing neighbors is that going forward, it's going to be a little harder to get right. respect. Right. You're going into a soap opera. Right. You will become very famous mm-hmm. and you'll become known for that. The upside is it earns you enough money so you can go to New York and study acting for six months. So right. my agent was saying, do it. Mm-hmm. Do it for two years and then go mm-hmm. and go and study acting for three months. And, and you're working and you'll learn a lot of camera technique and blah, blah, blah. But I was always like, my dream was to be the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre, yes, to do mm-hmm. stuff all around the world. And I was like, am I going to feel in two years like I deserve an audition of the Royal Shakespeare Company? So anyway, I said to my dad and he said, I can't answer that question for you. You have to come up with that. So I just let it sit. Saturday was terrible. I didn't know what to do. Somewhere on Sunday morning, I was working at that same gym mm-hmm. and I just felt, Oh, no, I'm going to go to the drama school. I just knew it. And I came home and I told my dad I made the decision I'm going to drama school. I'll never forget it. He went, oh, thank God. <laughs> and I said, really? Like yeah. you couldn't have told me that yesterday? And he goes, no, you're 23 years old. He wanted it to be your decision. You've yeah. got to choose. These yeah. are your decisions. But I'm so glad you chose the path of education because there's always going to be doubt. Right. And he said to me, he always worried that I was thin-skinned. He said, there's always going to be doubt, but at least if you know you've done the work, that you know what you're doing, you understand the craft, right. that you've got off on the right footing, right. you will feel like you belong. And it was the greatest advice I ever had, although I will admit one of my housemates in first year, so I'm doing first-year drama school, yeah. eating two-minute noodles. Right. <laughs> and all I remember about my character, the description of my character, he was a lawyer and he played trumpet. And I remember hearing trumpet on a TV and I poked my head around the corner and there was the guy Your who had classmate. the part. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't my class. My classmate was watching. Oh, was watching. But the guy you? who had the part that I oh, was offered. Oh, that you would have played. That didn't come on air until like six months into my first year. And I remember eating two-minute noodles going, I'm not 100% sure I made the right decision. <laughs> well, do you know where that guy is now? <laughs> I don't actually, no. And it does sound like you felt pretty soon that you made the right decision. I read a quote that I just want to read for listeners and correct me if it's not actually yours, but it sounds like fairly early in drama school, quote, I remember singing on stage and everything suddenly connected. The song, the physicality of performing, the audience. I sat down afterwards and wanted to cry. I couldn't cope with the emotion of it, close quote. That's pretty, that you remember a moment like that. It was second year. Yeah. And I remember my teacher, Lyle Jones, my main teacher, really. Mm -hmm. After I finished, people were clapping. It was anthem from chess. Mm Mm-hmm. He had been saying things to me like, I feel you're outside your character. It's almost like you're judging your outside. And I, I, I knew intellectually what he meant, but right. I didn't really know what he meant right. until that moment. No. I was like, oh, that's what it... Right. And he stood up, and I never had this really booming voice, <laughs> and he just went, yes, yes. That's great. And the feeling, it was like, ah, oh, a relief of like, oh, now I get it. Right. And that was 18 months in. For me, drama school, the three-year course was perfect. It's not perfect for everyone. And I say that to people who say, should I go? And I I say, I don't know. But for me, it really was 
made the big difference. I read that while you were enrolled in drama school, extracurricularly you did a course in philosophy that was yep. actually equally valuable in a way. Yep. You sort of fed each other. What was that? A mate of mine in my year, Warwick, yeah, there was something about him. It was super quick, super fast, super, just light in every way. And I, he had something about him. You meet those people and you're like, something about this guy. Like, and I said that to him. Mm-hmm. I said something about him. He goes, man, you should come along to this course I do. So I went along. This is a school of practical philosophy, which I'm still a member of. Now. Oh, wow. And meditation is introduced about 18 months into the course. But for the first nine months, I would say, I would do it. It was really about being present, listening, all the stuff I was hearing at drama school every single day and I'm like oh this is going to help me with my acting and so I kind of got into it Mm -hmm. and after about nine months I was like oh hang on a sec this is much deeper than acting and it kind of really keyed in to really the journey my father has started me on I suppose with religion which Mm -hmm. was something that why are we here what is the meaning of it all who are we all those bigger questions and And so so the whole idea though is to just a couple times a day just totally quiet the yeah. Mind, feel the senses. Yeah. The nature of the mind is to go. So just to take it back, the first yeah. exercise we got was two minutes, twice a day, sit and just listen, feel the breath coming in out of your nose, feel the clothes on your skin, just be in touch with all the senses, just for two minutes. Mm-hmm. And I arrived at drama school the next day, Lyle Jones, that same teacher, mm-hmm. said, I'm going to tell you something you should all do that none of you are going to do. But I'm telling you this will make all the difference in your life as an actor. You should sit down twice a day and just be in touch with your senses because acting is actually about being in the moment. It's not about what you say. It's about listening. And if you're not present, you can't be an actor. It's all amazing. So I was, that's when I was like, oh, I'm going to do that exercise, right? right? There's something and that, that developed into meditation twice a day. Right. And you still do that. Yeah. In October 94, you're 26 years old. You're finally out of schooling for the first time right (laughs) and having just finished drama school you go to audition to play a mentally challenged prisoner right on an australian tv show called corelli and you beat out a lot of other big australian actors for that part it was significant because it was your first professional gig but Mm -hmm. also why else the star of it was deborah lee finesse who i then married i'm still married to so (laughs) i think uh, it's safe to say that the far greater legacy of that show was my relationship with deb almost 25 years yeah wow let's just say there wasn't a second series yes but, uh, (laughs) but actually even more amazingly i auditioned while i was in the last month of school okay and so the abc which is like the bbc or yeah i suppose pbs here yeah in their charter their casting director had to go to every graduate of the major drama schools. That was part of, you know, even though everyone thinks it's Sydney, Melbourne, my school in Perth, which is on the other side of the country, we're going to come in audition. So we all thought, assumed this audition we did was BS, yeah. right? It was just because <laughs> someone told them they had to and right. that our audition tape is going straight in the, in the right, garbage. Right. And so I really went in. On, I remember it was a Saturday and I was in the middle of doing Romeo and Juliet and I was playing Romeo. So I was like, I don't even know if I learned the lines. Right. I just went in, I started ad-libbing, doing whatever. <laughs> right. I was like, I've got to go yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> and I found out I was on the short list, at the top of the short list, mm-hmm. which to me, when I hear that, I just hear it's yours to lose. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. And I was terrified for the next month. I said, you're going to do the callback in front of the entire panel on the day you graduate. So we do our graduation performance and then you're going to go to the ABC in wow. front of everybody. 
I was terrified and I yeah. was like, oh, I wish I could have back that. I don't really care about this <laughs> because I'm sure that's why I got it. Right. Anyway, and on the day I graduated, I thought I was going straight to the ABC to audition. My agent from way back in the day, remember I told you who I was still with, my agent said, they've decided just to give you the part. Wow. And that was the luckiest break I've ever had in my life. Yeah, you could just relax. <laughs> I could feel the t- how tired I was getting. Right. I could feel how nervous I was getting that all of a sudden I had this second audition. You know? Well, a lot of things would have been different. If Very that, different, yeah. yeah. The guiding hand. I yeah, think. exactly, exactly. Today people obviously know you're a very musically talented guy, but you have said, quote, It was a huge shock to me when I first did a musical in Australia because I trained as an actor. I thought I'd do straight theater, if anything, close quote. But then it was, I believe, three musicals in three years in a row. Mm. Joe Gillis in Sunset Boulevard in Melbourne for Trevor Nunn, who would be the third of these also in a second. We'll come to Gaston in Beauty and the Beast in Australia. And then back with Trevor Nunn as Curly in Oklahoma in London at the National Theater in 98, which is the one that kind of, I think, started the catapulting where you get the best actor Olivier nom and I think probably that's what brought you to the attention of people my agent yeah yeah well so that's yeah because I was just in Santa Barbara when you were being honored with the Uh, Kirk Douglas award and you said that this was the first time you were sharing a story publicly about your agent and how things with him went from I guess the point where you're in Australia still in the role of Curly in Oklahoma and then a months-long process that ends with you as Wolverine. So at the time, you were not known no. internationally. No. So what happened that leads you to the agent that then leads you to this part? So my agent, Patrick Weitzel, who now runs William Morris Endeavor yes. with Ari, he came and saw me on stage. And then when I, I had a London agent, who had just been around with Minnie Driver and Tom Wilkinson and Alfred Molina. So she was really the star. And I was along with her. And I went around and met. She knew everybody, right? So I was meeting high-up people within the agencies. And when I went to CAA, which is where Patrick was at the time, I remember Patrick saying, I saw you in Oklahoma, man. And I'm a Midwest boy. And after meeting everybody, I just knew Patrick was the guy for me. He was a straight shooter. He, he was in everything about him. It just felt very real and down to earth. And I didn't want BS. I didn't want people, you know, just telling me I was great without really believing it. And I got that from him. And he was courting you to be his client at that point? Yeah. And I signed with him pretty right much away. straight away. While you're still performing in London yes. as Carly. Right. Okay. So I finished that. And I had previously auditioned for this worldwide casting call for Wolverine, right? Which had, he sent me that and I went and I was in the running for it, but I ended up not getting in. Just so people see what a process this was. Right. You sign with Patrick Weitzel, who at that point's at CAA. Yes. He now has to send you out for things. Right. There's going to be a movie based on the X-Men comic books, Yeah. which to remind people, this is pre-Spider-Man, pre all right. there weren't comic book superhero movies right. yet. Yeah. So... Yeah. This was going to be the first. I don't know if you were a 
personally a comic book no. guy or a superhero guy, if that no. was your thing you were into. I but, never heard of it. Yeah. There was a, there was a rock band in Sydney you know, when I was going called yeah. The Uncanny X-Men. And I was like, <laughs> they want me to play Brian Mannix? <laughs> like, that's really random. Like, I get three pages right. through for the audition, right? Okay. Because even back then, that was secret about the script. Right. So I had three pages to read, and I'm running them, the lines with my wife, who's right. an actor, right. obviously. And she, I remember reading them going, okay, uh, Wolverine senses danger, his nostrils flare. <laughs> right? She raises an eyebrow there. <laughs> And snicked. She, I remember she goes, S-N-I-K-T, claws come out of his hands. And she's like, what? You, you, you're at the Royal National Theatre with Sir right. Trevor Nunn. You, you can't be having claws coming out of your hands. This is ridiculous. I said, no, nah, babe, I, I don't know much about the comic, but, right. you know, it's Ian McKellen, it's Patrick Stewart. There's a lot of really interesting people involved and... I'm going to go for the audition. She was like, well, you're on your own. So <laughs> She was not on she board. Was like, no. yeah. <laughs> so I went the next day, and it was between the matinee and the evening performance of Oklahoma. <laughs> and we had a long show, so we right. came down at 5 o'clock. I literally ran into Soho yeah. to do this audition, and then I had to get back. Oh. See, in the theatre, I don't think the people understand, if you're late, you actually get fined. Yeah, like, you've yeah, got yeah. to be there at the half hour, yeah. and if you don't turn on a half hour, your understudy's on. Right. So, and they were keeping me waiting. I'm like, uh, guys, I gotta go. I gotta go. And you're in costumes though? again. I take them. Thankfully, <laughs> I'm playing Curly in Oklahoma. The leather chaps were off. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I had a perm in my hair. I was playing Curly, so I had a baseball cap on. I remember right. the casting agent going, "I think you should take the baseball cap off." And I said, uh, "I don't know." And he goes, "No, take it off." <laughs> I take it off. He goes, "Yeah, put it back on." <laughs> and I did the audition. And again, it was a bit like, I know this is going nowhere. Mm -hmm. I gotta go. Mm -hmm. I actually probably had a little bit of Wolverine. Like I was a little pissed off. Yep. They kept me waiting. They knew I was in a show down the road. Right. And I'm like, come on, guys. You know. So anyway, I get a call back, which was shocking to mm -hmm. me. And then I do that call back and they said, we're going to fly you in. We're flying you in to do a proper screen test. To L.A. To L.A. And I said, oh, but I'm doing a show on right. the West End. They said, yeah, well, you just have to miss a show or two and go in. I said, I, I, I can't just miss a show. I said, it's a theatre show. Like, this is a big Hollywood movie. And I said, it's a big West End show. Yeah, I, said, yeah. I said, it's just not done that way, mm -hmm. man. I'm the leader of that ensemble. Mm -hmm. I'm playing the lead part. Mm -hmm. I can't turn up the day after and say, sorry, Mr. Show, right. I had an audition. Right, right. Like, it just doesn't happen that way. And they said, finally, they came back. They said, well, then there's no, no audition. I said, fine. No What's audition. Patrick saying through this? He was w right with me. Yeah. No, no it, yeah. you see, that's what I love about Patrick. Yeah. Patrick's like... No destination is worth being a dick getting there. Right. If you have to be a dick to get there, right. it's not worth it. Right. You know? And I guess we'll come to the other example. Right, that, right. Which is a more powerful right, example right. of that. So I, Patrick Gunpack says, they're going to fly you Concord. And I'm like, I'm in. Like, <laughs> so you'll go no, this what, is on, my a, dream. on I'm your day off. Oh, my day off. Yeah. I'm going to fly in. I'm right. going to audition. I'm going to fly back. Right, and right. I'm like, you know what? If I don't get this, I get to fly the Concorde. Right. Right? That, that's something that you never <laughs> think will ever happen. I remember one of my dad's friends flew the Concorde, and I sat at his feet hearing about it. Like, when he was, anyway. But wait, is a part of you saying, yeah, I've, I've had a success now in Oklahoma, but this seems a little far-fetched that they're going to make me the star of a huge, not just a movie in Hollywood, but this is going to be a big, big budget yeah, Hollywood I, movie. Did my you... mind's not going there. Okay. My mind doesn't go to, you know, I don't want to set myself up for that kind of, I, I don't do the, this is my big break. I'm right. like, you got to understand, my dream was to be either in the National Theatre or the Royal Shakespeare Company, right. and I'm at the National Theatre, I'm 28, right. and the show's a hit show. Like, right. that was pretty much the summation of my dream. Yep. So, 
everything else was a bonus. Right. And I was like, I'll go. I don't remember thinking, ah, curses, Gotta that's my... Right, right. No, so, but I do remember thinking I want to get on that Concorde. And <laughs> the director was sick. He kept, I remember for two or three, at least three weekends, I'm flying, oh, no, you're not. I'm flying, oh, no, you're not. I'm flying, oh, no, you're not. And then the, you're not flying, we've recast. We've cast the other guy. Dugray Scott. Dugray, okay. I don't and know. I was yeah. like, okay. So that was it. And the, so he was I think cast. I was more upset about not going on the Concorde at the time, <laughs> to be honest. So then I guess he ends up, he's doing Mission Impossible 2. Yeah. And that runs long. So yeah, now, so now we've cut six months later. Right. He's on Mission Impossible 2. He'd been in a thing with Drew Barrymore mm-hmm. ever after, I think. He was kind of the next yes. thing. And I fly to... Los Angeles with my wife to start legal proceedings for the adoption of my son. So I'm about to start a film in Australia for the guy who gave me my first film part when no one else would mm-hmm. see me because mm-hmm. I was in musical theatre, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Right. So he's doing another film and he's offered me a part in that. So we fly into LA and I just, hey, hey, Patrick, I'm here, man. I don't know if you want me to see you. He goes, funny, you ring because I have this weird feeling I think they represented Tom Cruise as well as CIA. And he said, the guy who got that part in Wolverine, I don't know if it's going to work out. And they, I think also he was, yeah, no, that was it. There was nothing about Cyclops. That was something earlier. They said, anyway, regardless, I want to send you in, do a test, just see. So I go in and I meet someone, Donna Isaacson, and she chats with me. I go and meet Tom Rothman, who I think at the time was head of production maybe. Mm -hmm. And we had a great chat. Then the next day I go and meet Bill Mechanic. And, so, and I realised I'm going for all these meetings. I kept thinking I'm going to walk in a room and Rupert Murdoch's going to really? be there. I just kept going <laughs> up the ladder. Then finally they said, We're gonna, we want to fly you to meet Brian, who was in Toronto, okay. about to start filming. Oh, wow. In fact, the day I flew into Toronto was his first day of photography. And clearly at this point they're not sure if Dugro's going to be available. There'd be something about an injury and something about them going over and Tom not releasing him and all that stuff. So I go and I remember distinctly thinking Brian was looking at me like, I don't know why I'm seeing this guy. Like, I've got a guy. So I felt like I was going because the studio wanted a plan B. Right, right, right. And he was like, really? I'm shooting. I don't want to be thinking plan Bs, (laughs) right? I'm just going plan A. And he was totally fine with me. One of the things I remember most was Kevin Feige, mm-hmm. who was the assistant to Lauren Schilladonna at the time. He and Tom DeSanto drove me back to the airport and took me out for dinner before. If I didn't say it, I remember thinking, you don't, guys, you don't have to. We all, we all <laughs> know this is a, it's a plan B, right? <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm good. And I always think, oh, what a classy guy. Like, and right. we've maintained our friendship That's ever so since, funny. Kevin and I. So, and it was exactly what I thought it was. It was a plan B. So I go back. And we did something on a video camera. It was so low key that I barely remember. I remember Brian saying, quieter, quieter, quieter. And I think I'm you know, speaking. Like, yeah, I remember. I, quieter. All right. Okay. All right. I've got to go back to the set. I'm like, okay. <laughs> did you see what, who was it that would have been on set that when you were there for your audition, somebody said one of I these I didn't other- go on set. 
Or I was in like the production offices, so, so I never right, went on set. But somebody saw you and said you were like, "Well, it's been nice seeing oh, you. I'll never no, see I you saw again." Ian, Ian McKellen. That's what it was. Yeah, because mm -hmm. they were shooting some of the opening stuff, and Ian McKellen was there, and I'm a massive fan. Right. And I had literally in Oklahoma taken his dressing room. He'd okay. been there just before, so I was having a chat, and right. I said, "Man, it's so great to finally meet you, even though I'll never get to see you again." <laughs> I just auditioned, right? And he says, oh, well, you never know, you never know. I say, yeah, yeah no, I know. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and, and so I go back, and it's exactly as I suspected. Brian, I think from memory, yeah, do grace his guy, and it's going to happen. And then I got a call two or three days later from my agent saying, they're flying you back. Things have got to a critical point mm -hmm. with Dugray. And they were upset that when I went, I didn't do a proper test. Okay. So I'm like, all right. So now I fly back and I am on set. So I get there about 10 in the morning, 12, 11 in the morning. I hung out with Anna Paquin all day. And she'd finished filming at about 11 in the morning. And she stayed around all day to do a scene with me cool. at the end of the day. And then Fumka Janssen also. She'd been shooting all day. They stayed back. And I went on the set. They were, I think it was the like a Senate politics kind mm -hmm. of thing. She was doing some speech to the United Nations or the Congress or something. Mm -hmm. And it was on that set. And again, I remember thinking, I haven't got this part. Because I, I can fully remember Brian doing one of these. Uh, okay, yeah, <laughs> just do the scene. All right, yeah. And normally, like, you're, you've been flying up there. It's a screen test. Everyone's waiting. If you're not doing more than one take of each scene, that's a really bad right, sign. Right, right, right. Uh, all right, yeah, just do the second scene. <laughs> and I do the second scene... I think I asked then. I said, can I, do, can I do that again? I'll get another idea. And he goes, oh, all right. So I do that. Silence. Right. Anna's been lovely. And I thought this is, in the end, again, I don't think I really believed that this was going to happen. Right. Then Brian came up and he gave me a hug and said, you're the guy. Wow. He so later told me that he, the security guy, the guy's hanging on set yeah. all day. He goes, what's this? And he goes, oh, I'm just auditioning possible someone for Wolverine. And this, he said the security guy, he goes, yeah, he's the guy. He's the guy. That's so great. That's what Brian would say. And he goes, really? He goes, yeah, he's the guy. That's great. And he really took that advice from someone else. But anyway, he gave me the part. So I, now I go back. Yep. And this is the bit I shared at yes. the Santa Barbara Film Awards. It was great. And so I, don't, I don't know if you saw from where – I know it's bright up on the podium, but Patrick was crying. It was, was he really very moved? So I think, it, and it was I, understandably. So I just, so yeah. Now I'm in this position. Yeah. By the way, I think a lot of people don't understand when you go for a screen test for a big movie like this, you do your deal beforehand because the last thing the studio want is <laughs> now for you them, have leverage. Yeah. You have leverage, right? <laughs> and this is how naive right. I was. I remember before I flew up, right? My agent called me saying. Good news, I managed to negotiate you down from a three-picture deal to a two-picture deal. Oh, my God. This is Patrick. Oh, Patrick. Got I you said, down. you did what? Yeah. So they were going to offer me three jobs, and you said, no, let's make it two? <laughs> and he goes, you'll work it out. Yeah. He was laughing like you are. He goes, you'll work it out, which I did on X-Men 3. <laughs> but, yeah, So, right. anyway, I come back, and I now in my head, I know everything. I know how big a film it is. Right. I know it's more money than I ever thought I'd get paid right, in my life. Right. I know the opportunity and I also know that I said yes to a mate to be in his film which starts shooting in 10 days. This is the guy who gave you your yeah. first role. And all along the way, Patrick knew about this and he'd shared all this with the studio mm -hmm. and the studio were like, well, we can work something out. I think they were, I remember them saying, there's no contract. Yeah. There's not even a handshake. He goes, hey, the studio were like, oh, we can work this out. 
And I was talking with the director and all of that. And I just remember we went out to dinner to celebrate. And my publicist at the time, I don't know why I had a publicist, but I did. <laughs> I was, it was my future publicist, my agent sent me. He said, come on, let's have a dinner. And Patrick came. And i never forget, he sat down next to me. And I said, mate, I feel sick to my stomach. And he goes, I know. He cut me off. I started to say something like, this is the best opportunity in my life. I really want to do it, but I can't do that to my mate in this film. I can't. And he said to me, I never hear I know. Nothing in life is worth that moment. No amount of success will make that moment worthwhile where you walk into a room 5, 10, 15 years from now and that director's on the other side of the room and you can't look him in the eye. Mm-hmm. I said, nothing's worth that. And I said, I was so relieved because I assumed I was going to get the full core press. Like, dude, you haven't got a show. Come on, you've right. got to do this. You're opportunity and I got yeah. you this and that, da, da. Right. I, I just thought that's the way it was going right, to go. Right, right, right. And it was the opposite. And he, he's, he said something else like, never let where you want to get in life get in the way of the way you want to live your life. And then just to further emphasize, so this, this was the guy that, who had given you your first film role. Yeah whose career was not heading to the stratosphere like yours was. Right. And it would have been pretty devastating to him if you just dropped him. Yeah, 10 days before he shoot. Right. Right. And it's not the lead, but it's like the second lead. Right. It's, it's enough of a deal. Right. And for it's you, a small it movie. Gonna, it may be a million-dollar movie. Right. wasn't going to do a lot for you, but it was no. the, Right. And to be honest, I was probably doing a more to say thanks for giving me that first big sure. break, which was really important for me. And which I, film was the first one? It was one? called Erskineville Kings, and I got nominated right. for an AFI, and that right. helped when I was signing with my agent. Right. He watched that film along with Oklahoma. So it was important to me, and I, and I just said I can't right. do that to the guy. And he said, let me get to work. Patrick, yeah. Patrick. So we were up an agonizing night. It was 3 o'clock in the morning when he finally came with – a plan of him negotiating with the studio, with the production in Australia, mm-hmm. where every, and literally everyone was happy. And I went to bed at three o'clock going, I'm going to be Wolverine. That's but awesome. the defining moment for me mm-hmm. was him cutting me off because I, I was brought up, you can understand from not just the religious background, but my father ethically is just like rock solid. Mm-hmm. So this thing, the most boring thing you can think of. You've got to go there and then you get a call from the Rolling Stones. We'd love you to come and tour with us for a month and seeing he goes, you do the thing you committed to. Yeah. Even no matter how good that is, right. you've got to be a man of your word, right? right. That's what's drummed into me. And right. again, you've got to live with yourself. Don't have right. anything that haunts you in your life. And so I was like, I can't do it. And I think I'm probably going to lose my agent. Right. He's probably going to fire me. Right. And he's not going to understand. He did the opposite and he's always been that way and it was both my wife and I said that was the moment you know that you don't just have a great agent you have someone who's a great man yeah I mean it's a great story to hear because also I think you know there's this stereotypical agent that is not like that so it's nice to hear that you know and you could ask I'm telling you Christian Bale or Matt or Ben or you know Jude Law or Denzel or all these people who have Patrick represented will tell you similar stories always thinking long term you were 31 when the first installment of X-Men came out, first of the nine that you were a part of. Financially, it certainly now enabled you to proceed with the adoption, which I had read. You'd said it's not a small cost right. to get involved with that. So that happens. But opening weekend of the first one, how quickly and in what ways did your life change? My wife had the first sense of it. I remember we were sitting out. We were in New York on the stoop 
hot. Came out in July. We were sitting out and she said, everything's going to change for me. I said, yeah, well, you know, I've always tried to underplay, you know. <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm telling you. And right. I went, I was working on someone like you with Ashley Judd. Tony mm -hmm. Goldman was directing. Mm -hmm. And I went to the set and I come out of my trailer and there was about 10 photographers. And I literally looked over my shoulder like, oh, <laughs> Ashley must have come out of her trailer or someone else is around her. It took me a beat to kind of work out that they were taking my photograph. The movie had just come out. Yeah. Oh, prior to the release of the movie? Nobody cared. No. And I was auditioning for a bunch of stuff. Like, right. I still see things. I see Miss Congeniality, and I'm like, yep, audition for that. <laughs> Didn't get it. Like, you know the worst thing about that? First of all, Sandra Bullock, who I got right. to audition with right. her, I remember thinking, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just, I just couldn't keep up. I hadn't learned a lot. Right. She was just miles ahead of me at the time. And the worst thing was Patrick said, I had another offer. Right. And he said, I want you to audition for Miss Congeniality. I don't think you should do it. I think you should do the other thing. Right. But I would love to have both offers so I can yeah, negotiate, right? <laughs> it's really humiliating when you go in for something that right. your agent doesn't want you to do, but you don't get it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there was so a bunch of stuff. I remember going in and they, I'm in rooms with 30, 40 actors. And, and another mate of mine who was in the business said, dude, you've got to book your next film. The word on the street is... It's dead in the water. The X-Men will be X -Men. bad. No one yeah. cares about comic book right. movies. As long as you have another film, at least you've got another shot. <laughs> you just keep that get was the feeling, it, yeah. right? You keep it. So right. make sure you're shooting. And so we were. And in fact, on opening weekend, it, it way exceeded expectations. I, it had to be double. Yeah. I, I got so many phone calls at seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning. <laughs> that was. I'm pretty sure most of them were still drunk. drunk. It was like an incredible. <laughs> Right. thing that was happening and then it just kept exceeding expectations right and it everything i could count on one hand the amount of times i've auditioned from then you Should know it, it, the offers just started coming oh out. it's amazing mm. just a very last quick couple things about this period this is different than any sort of not just the scale of what you were doing versus what you've done before but also the the form of acting which i guess for the clause and other things is going to be a lot of what blue screen green screen mm, mm. vfx stuff did you actually enjoy moving into acting in that way or you know it's obviously as a career move it, you you do it but was that actually creatively satisfying for you to be doing that form of acting absolutely yeah i, mean, I get asked all the time it must be pretty boring playing wolverine again or oh, this one must be a doddle he just walks i've never felt that yeah nor would I want to feel it. Right. But it's always felt challenging to me. The green screen, not so much. I yeah. think because if you imagine being on stage, your gaze is always out to a black wall, let's call it. You can see people a yeah. little bit, but anything you're looking at, it could be, oh, you're talking about the sunset. You're imagining everything, right? right? You ne very rarely even have running taps. Right. If you've got a sink, it's, it's all pretend. Right, right. So, which is all <laughs> green screen is. So right. that part, easy for me. No yeah, problem. You can just do it in your But I, I'll admit, the first six weeks, I was really frightened and unsure if I was cutting it. There was no rehearsal. Brian didn't like to rehearse. That was very weird for me. I'd come mm -hmm. from the theatre. Mm -hmm. So we're all just doing this, and then you wait for someone to go good or bad. Right. And, but we're filming. And, okay, and I haven't, I'd done a little bit of film and TV, but not a lot. The people, I remember, we were super, super close, but there was... You know, all the actors, we got really close really quickly, but it felt uncomfortable to me. I wasn't sure if I was cutting it or not. It was about six weeks in before I kind of slapped myself around oh, a little bit, it. going, I'm being too careful here. Like, I'm, 
I'm waiting for approval right. from some. Uh, that's not coming. Like that's you just fun, yeah. got to do your thing. Right. And I just started at living and doing different right. stuff. And I started to get the feedback. I oh, now you're on the track. But right. for six weeks, I just wasn't sure. And I, I think I felt like it was okay. Right. No one was firing me. Right. But no one was coming up to me going nailing it. Right. And I just wasn't sure what to do. It took me a little while. So it wasn't fun at the beginning. Okay, so just to, to maybe a, a moment on a bunch of these things leading up to the present, if we can just to remind people of all the great work preceding this. Cain Leopold was the first movie, I think, that came about as a result of the first X-Men. That's yep. sort of time-jumping dramedy. And the first time with James Mangold, who would then get involved with the X-Men yeah. stuff, you were told sort of Errol Flynn, that was the, the, the direction there that yes. you would get a lot? Why? It's not a swashbuckler. It's not in the 30s. But it was, it was a mind. He was a guy from the past. Right. Coming now uh, with this sort of debonair, charming, but still well-mannered and yes. old-fashioned quality. Yes. And it was about that guy being placed into modern yeah. America. So Errol Flynn was and, – and working with Jim was a huge turning point for me because yeah. Jim is brash and honest and will tell it as it is. And it was really great and I learned a lot actually on film acting and – this was another thing Weitzel had said to me. Yeah. He said, look, you're 26. You get your first job at 26, right? right? And you're 31 now, but you've actually only done three films. Right. So I don't want to put you as above title right. in a whole bunch of movies. I could. Right. And I could get you paid a lot more. Right. I think you should spend some time working. So I did a movie with Travolta, the Swordfish, one with Ashley yeah. Judd. Swordfish I did uh, with Ashley Judd. Or this one with Meg Ryan. And James Mangold. And that was a huge turning point for me, learning the art of it. And also he said, you've got a range and I want to make sure people see something very different from Wolverine. It was a little while after you had now become internationally known with the X-Men movies before people beyond Australia began to realize that you were such a musically talented guy. There could have been earlier things. I heard that you turned down the Richard Gere part in Chicago and yeah. weren't able to do the Phantom of the Opera. So those could have been the first. That, that's true? Yeah, my palms still get sweaty with Chicago. I mean, I, for, for a long time I didn't talk about it because I think it's pretty shitty when actors say, yeah, I turned that part <laughs> down. But it's sort of, he went on to win every award deservedly and was fantastic for yep. the part. My son was just born and I've been working hard. It was a mixture of that as well as he had a line that I couldn't get past. I've seen it all, kid. And I was still 32, 33 yeah, yeah. and about the same age as no, the girls sense. I say it to. And I was like... But I remember sitting in that screening and you just know five minutes in that this thing is right. it was going to be awesome. And I remember thinking, why didn't I just put some makeup on? I like, you know, made myself look older. But anyway. Well, it was nice that the big reveal for you in a way was Peter Allen and the Boy From Oz. Right, yeah. Which is another one that you had turned down at one point yes. right, in yeah. Australia before it came to Broadway. 364 performances on Broadway. As you're breaking through as a movie star, people might have questioned that this is – the way to continue mm. the momentum, but of mm. course, it obviously worked out great. Everyone apart from my agent Every, said yeah. this was a crazy idea. This is not the time. Like, fine, do Broadway, but right. you're on, you're cresting that wave, right. and as a movie star, you you can't assume it's going to be there forever. Right. Now's the time. But I had turned it down before and felt sick in my stomach watching it right. in Australia with me not in it. Right. That when, by the time I had the second chance, I was like, I'm in. And and for Patrick. It's interesting if any young agents out there listening. Yeah. He was always like, I'm here to manage the next 50 years of your career. Right. 
But if you ever tell me in my gut, I know I have to do this play, this musical, right. he goes, I don't care what it is, you do it. He says, because never forget, you're an artist. Like, you've got to keep growing. In sometimes when you get the luxury, and it's a luxury to feel that I've got to do this. Most of the time, it's not like that. You're like, ah, I love the director. The script is good. Like, as you're coming up, you're not getting the best material. Like, right. it's a luxury to go, yes, I've right. got to do it. And he always counseled me, if you feel it, you go for it. Well, and it was so fortunate you did, because that was, again, for your Broadway yeah. debut, win the Tony, the fact that you are now Mr. Broadway. I, every time you've come, it's been a, a phenomenon. You hosted, I think, three years in a row right after that, the Tonys. One other thing, which I, again, I've seen you talk about it before. I would hmm. not bother you about it otherwise. People in this country are very Puritan and weird and react to things, I think, in ways that other countries would not from that show is one of the legacies, this sort of lingering assumption on the part of that some people that you're gay. Yeah, I mean, look. It, That's got to be a uh, my my wife, my wife came to see the show yeah. about 40 times. And yeah. It was one time she was in the bathroom and she said, she's in the stall and she can hear the gossiping. Is he gay? I know he's married. I know I heard he's married, but he's actually, he, could, he was going back and forth. Is he or isn't it, this whole thing? And she just yelled out from the stall, he isn't. <laughs> And now everything went completely quiet. I mean, I understand. I think it's not just because of that. I Look, on some level, you should be offended if you're a movie star. There's not that rumor, right? It clearly means your career is shit. So, but I think playing a gay man, as well as for a lot of people, just, oh, he does musicals or he dances, you know, I've never really understood it. Yeah. Let me tell you, let me give you the tip. If you're a straight guy, you want to meet girls... Go to dance class because <laughs> let me tell you, the That's competition is very small. No. It's 100 girls and five guys, right? Anyway, I really don't care about it. I think sometimes people like to gossip and maybe they think, ah, oh, you know. It's just how can everything we be seems so too good. At all these, everything these, seems like, to be too good in his life. And, right. You know, it's fun. The X-Men thing, again, has been interspersed through, throughout these last 17, 18 years. And it seems like after the third one came out in 06 before the first Wolverine one in 09 it seems like you were at a point where it's like in some ways maybe it's limiting me in other mm. opportunities mm. and that changed with with 06 you've got Scoop for Woody Allen you've got The Prestige for yeah. Nolan and then you have The Fountain for yeah. Aronofsky what changed that allowed you to not feel it was a limitation but actually you know break out and do all these other things in that particular the way? real change was doing The Boy From Oz Darren Aronofsky came to see it yeah. three times and he came backstage and handed me the script for The Fountain. He was like, dude, I had no idea. Like, but if you can do that, yeah. you can do my movie. Yeah. I believe that's when Spielberg then went back to the Board of Governors and said, this guy should host the yes. Oscars. Yes. And I don't think Woody came, but his casting agent came and just offered me a part in his movie and things started to happen with Nolan. I, I think it just sh shook people up so much because i mean to be fair to the business nothing outside of wolverine had really hit for me right so i could understand why those people making the commercial right. decisions go well unless it's like a wolverine right. kind of role i right. don't know if he's your guy because they tried it with van helsing or whatever and some other not right. was... van helsing did okay yeah. it, but it didn't do what people think right. there was a couple of other things and so i i understand where that came from and i also you know, I don't think X-Men 3 was our best, and I don't think the first Wolverine, certainly the first Wolverine was not our best. So there was a period there where we were doing big commercial movies that were not great. So I right. think 
it was the boy from Oz that just shook Broke people. And I think people like Darren yep. get excited by, oh, okay, so you think Scott Feinberg's this? I'm going to show you that he's right. not. Right. And I'm going to be the one to get that before. I think people like that. And also yeah. the other thing, yeah. it was some advice that Nicole gave me, Kidman. Yes. She's been friends with, like, she slept on my wife's couch oh, like, wow. when she first came to L.A. Wow. So, and Deb was at their wedding, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so yeah. they're close match. She said, you come from the theatre where directors are important, but in movies it's everything. Mm -hmm. It's a director's medium. Read scripts, read books, scripts and stories important, but really do you work with directors because not only on how the film turns out, but as you develop as a film actor, you learn from every director because they are going to teach you how to get out of the way of the camera. And that year was evidence of that with those And three. so that's why I was just, and then all of a sudden it started to open up, started yeah. to jump on board. And just other bold things, Australia, you know, people can decide if they like it or not, but these are not nothing decisions. But the Oscars, would you ever do the Oscars again? I would do it again. Yeah? For sure. If they came to you this year? They asked me a couple of times. Yeah? And both times I was doing something else. Right. And I remember thinking, I can't do it. I, I, right. I'm not that good. I mean, no, it was the Ali Borman was the, doing one of the best I've ever seen. No, I, I loved it because your show is really predicated from the nominations right. on. So you right. got like this four, six week period. Yeah. So this year I'm probably going to be doing prep for my show, but yes. I don't know. I'm open. Okay. And Glenn Weiss is doing it, right? Yes. Les Mis, you said the role of Jean Valjean was the holy grail, close quote for mm. you of roles. It's really two roles though, because the two different time periods, the big thing here was Tom Hooper's first after winning Best Picture for the King's Speech and they're going to do it with the live singing. Maybe you mm -hmm. can explain why that's unusual and, and, and different but yeah. after seven weeks rehearsal and all this weight fluctuation that you had to do to go in and do that and get the Oscar nomination and all of that for that. Just your reflections on that. I was nervous about it in a pretty profound way but I was relieved when I heard he was going to do it live. Yeah. For someone from the theatre that to me, I think it focuses people. And I mean, vocally difficult, but having done eight shows a week, singing, singing 20 songs a night, I was like, oh no, I, I, I can manage that. Yeah. But Lame is, unlike most musicals, is all singing. So the chance of us pulling off something that feels real and immediate with all these close ups that yeah. he knew he wanted to do, with it everything being recorded, I thought there's just no chance. It's just, and so he was like, I really want to do it live. And I was like, that's great. And so my audition actually was three hours long. The fact and that I you had the audition is Well, kind I of didn't. I asked to audition yeah. because Cameron wanted me to play Javert originally because okay. he'd asked me to play Javert on stage many right, times. Right, right. So he said, Well, you can be our Javert. This was early, early on. And I said, You know what? I really want to play Jean Valjean. He goes, I don't know if you can sing it, man. Like, that's, that's a huge range. Like, you're a baritone. I don't know if you can do it. And I said, yeah, let me audition. And then we'll both find out. So yeah. let me just, so I did like a three-hour audition. So that was, right. yeah. Because actually when he knew me back in Oklahoma, I didn't have that range. But I've been working with a singing teacher. Got it yeah. down, yeah. So Mangle gets involved with the X-Men movies with the Wolverine. You decide to stick around a little longer. Well, I asked him to come. That was the, okay, because if you're going to stay involved, it needed to be under circumstances that you were Yeah, I was with. unhappy with where we got to on the Wolverine. Yeah. And I, I'm, I usually, I, I realize I very rarely ever said that because I don't want to be disparaging to all yeah. those people who gave up a year of their life sure. to work on it. But I knew there was a more human character study 
about this, and that's what I always wanted to get to. I felt like a golfer who'd never played a, the round of golf yeah. where they go, all right, that's where you're now at. I can put the clubs back in the garage, right? And so that bought it so, a few more installments that you could feel well, the, good about it. I think we really started to really get there with the Japanese story. Yes. And I thought Jim did a great job with that, and I was like, oh, now we're getting yeah. ah, I see where we're going. Hello, Josie, right? And then while we were there yeah. on that thing, we started talking about, but if we could really have carte blanche right, to right, do right, any, right, right, right. that's when we started talking. The wrestler, Shane, Unforgiven. Right. And that came three years later. Last few years have been so interesting because you've alternated. You did Prisoners were seeing you in a rawer right. way than previously. The River, you've said it was so interesting because people don't expect you to go do a, a play in a small venue, but it's in some ways the you know close, close, close to you. And then back for one final X-Men with Logan, where, again, with Mangold, and the best reviewed of the whole franchise, yeah. I think, yeah. because... Yeah, by far. Yeah, I mean, people felt that it was... NPR said, quote, feels grounded in a way most comic book movies don't, just close quote, for the reasons that you have referred to. But walking away from that, the decision to do that, what drove it? I heard you talk to Seinfeld, you talked to people, just knowing that after... You'd played this character longer than anyone had ever played a superhero character. Just were you kind of ready to move on, or or did you have to know that there was an installment that was sending it out in a good way? Yeah, and the moment I we came up with that idea for that final was around about the time that I just knew that it was time just for move on. And by the way, this is a great part. That's yeah. someone, yeah. not one, but... Five other people should play yeah. and will play you over so? the years. A hundred percent, right? It's a, it's like Bond. It, it, it's a great part. The reason, and I, I have such respect and friendly with many, many people in the comic book business, but I did not grow up reading a comic book mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. So I didn't come from that world. My love for Wolverine didn't come from the comic books. The more I got to know him, I was like, this is a brilliant character. This is like Greek tragedy. Right. This is Shakespearean. This right. is getting down to the essence of the push and pull within each of us between the controlled and the chaos. Right. You know, this is, and there is something there that should speak to people who've never read a comic book in their life. To people, that's why I, I actually jokingly said, I said, guys, this movie, if we do it right, should premiere at the Berlin Film Festival. Yeah. And actually, when Chris Aronson rang me and said, we're going to the Berlin that's Film awesome. Festival, I was, like, I, was like, <laughs> I, I was joking about that, but that's what I wanted it to be because that's how much I love that character but the, in terms of stepping away from it it felt I mean a little bittersweet because when you finally I look up on that screen I go that's what I had always felt wanted it to be yeah I'm like mm, I wish we could start there a little <laughs> bit but at the same time it's I think with all this stuff you got to get rid of the idea that it's about you it's not about me it's not about I, I've been unbelievably lucky to play that part it's time for someone else to play it and to take it to places that I didn't know how to do it or had run out of ideas or however. And, and I leave the party. I'm, I'm in the cab going home. Right. And even if someone's saying, dude, they've just put on your favourite song, I'll be like, it's okay. You had it, you Dance had it, away. I'm good. Right. <laughs> I'm good. It's great. And to follow it with then something that you had been wanting to do since, I think, the Oscars, because yeah. when you host the Oscars, it was Bill Conn and Lawrence Mark, Jenny right. Bix, all these people. Now you get the La La Land, Dear Evan Hansen guys, Patrick right. and Paul. You get all the pieces together for Greatest Showman. But that was not 
either easy to come together or to the way that it ended up being such a success. I mean, just to remind people, original musical, sort of old-fashioned in the best sense, but $84 million budget for an original musical doesn't happen. And it wasn't going to happen until you... I read this great story, I think it was in your profile for THR that you did, where all the Fox brass is going to come to New York to decide whether or not they're going to get in on this thing, and you are physically actually one of the rare times yeah. not supposed to or able to sing. sing. No, I just had a, a cancer cut out of my nose, and I had 80 stitches in my nose, and I thought, oh, it's fine, I can go and sing. Like, yep. Stitches in my nose. And the guy goes, no, 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 you can't sing, because if the blood's going to go to your head, it could... Sp- burst the yeah. stitches and then you're infected Scarred and then it's a nightmare and yeah, yeah and i'm like dude i got all these people flying in from all over the world for this thing i got to do and he goes no, well you can't so i i rang the director and he said don't tell anyone yeah <laughs> he says you are going to announce it not yeah. me yeah the day they are there right. and they had someone else as someone to sing for me and then of course you could stupidly <laughs> and the showman in me i suppose I thought I'll sing the beginning of From right. Now On because it's pretty much spoken, right. and then I'll let him take over. And of course, I didn't let him take over. Well, it sold but, the sold them on the movie, which then. But I have to give you know, like I'm sitting here going, uh, I I really want to give credit to Michael Gracie, the Roger, director, yeah. because there was a period, and this I have not told anybody, mm-hmm. where I was we were four or five years in, and he was pretty much working on nothing else, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure it was going to go. And I thought, I think I might be the reason it's hanging on, but it's probably not going to go. So I called him in. I said, dude, I'm going to get off. I said, it's been a long time and I can't sit here any longer and have you dedicate more time, more money, more everything to something that I have. I've got real doubts. It's going to go. And I was sick to my stomach doing that meeting. I remember telling my wife, I said, you guys, I was in a hotel and he came to visit me in the hotel in Melbourne. And we, we actually went into the bedroom and Deb was outside in like the living room and I opened the door 45 minutes later and Deb looked at me like, is everything okay? I said, we're going to do the film. <laughs> I jokingly say to Michael, I went into that room to break up and I came out pregnant. <laughs> and it was him and he said, I understand. Yeah. But here's the thing, you have to go with me and believe because we are going to make a movie that is going to be seen around the world, that every Christmas people watch, people watch it over. and Like, everything that has happened in that room, he told me would happen. But it's incredible because the way it happened was that it actually, out of the gate, was not successful, looked like it was tanking. And he never doubted And it. defied every single model and grew each week. That doesn't happen. When we opened to, like, a nothing, yeah. I rang and I said, I'm really sorry, dude. I'm sorry. And he goes, no, no, no. It's going to start picking up. It's going to happen after the new year. I'm telling you. Like, but how do you explain that? I mean, that number one soundtrack. Unless he's US read The Day? Secret or something like that, yeah, the book. It's cr- I mean, it, it is, well, look, the music, there's a famous quote that musicals work because of the book, but people love it because of the music. Yeah. And, and people fell in love with our music. Yeah. And there was an energy, I think, behind the thing that was Michael. It was this belief, unwavering belief in a kind of magic. Right. That is part of the story of the thing. Right. It's Barnum, really. Yeah. And people say to me, you were Barnum. I go, well, actually, Michael Gracie was the real Barnum. Right. Because he, sure. there was a point where I was doubting. Right. And he said, come on. Oh, that's an amazing Hollywood story there for you. We're going to finally close with this, what you're getting the greatest reviews from a lot of people of your career for. And I'm sure that's got to be gratifying. But that is Gary Hart in the front runner. Saw it at Premier and Telluride Film Festival and have followed it Toronto and everywhere else. I guess just 
how did it first come to your attention and what appealed to you about it as someone who had not previously played a living person? And I don't know if you connected with Gary Hart himself yep. before this, but just what was the appeal? Jason Reitman was the main appeal. I have unbelievable respect for him as a filmmaker, as a man, and I've learned a lot from him, let me tell you. That was the first thing. Mm -hmm. I think I was really surprised by the story. My agent, Patrick, had... I think he studied or majored in political science and he knew a little bit of it, but he said, I'm kind of in shock when you read this of how much I thought I knew and didn't. And I thought, oh, well, there's really something in there because, of course, I knew nothing. Right. I was Australian, so I didn't really know anything about it. But it was fascinating to me that he potentially was the person that everyone describes as the great president America never had. And in three weeks, he was gone. He's never heard from again. And that, that actually that turning point really spoke to how the hell we got to where we are today or gave some answers at least because, and i think yeah as well as just the challenge of playing someone who's very different from me who is very private very intellectual with great ideas real strength but a, a, an amazing a very enigmatic mercurial hard to pin down sort of person i'm the opposite of that really you only have yeah. to spend 10 minutes when people go all right i got it. i got that guy <laughs> i know who he is right and Playing that was a real challenge for me, and I think doing it with Jason was something that was worth going for. And his team, because we should note that he and Vera Farmiga had worked together on Up in the Air. He and yeah. J.K. Simmons have worked together on everything. Yeah. He and Caitlin Deaver had worked together on Men, Women, and Children. Now you're the new guy, and no, apparently yeah. J.K. Simmons was saying in, in Santa Barbara, the, the moment you were embraced into the club, I guess, was this scene where you have to throw an axe yeah. as Gary Hart. And you, like, nailed it on the first take. They're like, all right, he's good good by us. But. He, told me, he told me about the scene. He goes, dude, the axe running scene, I've, let me tell you how I've designed it. And it's, it was a minute and a half one finishing with me throwing the axe. Right, because the whole moving camera. And know. I immediately went, oh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know Naomi Watts. She goes, you have no idea how hard it was to be in Birdman when your oh one God. line is 14 minutes right. into the scene. And your nerves... Please don't screw up. Please don't oh screw up. God. You don't want to be there. Well, person. you nailed it first thing. Anyway, so I went and practiced over and over again. Then I get there. The entire set and all the extras have a whole betting pool going on which take, <laughs> how many takes? I'm going to do it. How many takes? Yeah. What did Gary Hart have to say to you? I just wonder what he, how he sees I, the world at a time when the president of the United States is someone who has openly bragged on tape about doing something far worse than anything he was ever accused of doing, yeah. whether he even did it or not. So what was he able to impart on you that was most useful here? Oh, well, spending time with him was amazing. We're still very good friends. It was his birthday yesterday, by oh, the way. Happy nice. birthday, Gary. He's incredibly sharp on all things, and I, I think it really pains him to see what's happening today. But if you go back to his speech, which I yeah. thankfully got to say at the end of the movie, he's kind of predicting that if we flirt with these kinds of questions, if we start to put importance on things that are actually not that important, they may, they're interesting, but they're not defining. If we right. start to do that, we're going to go down a path that is going to end up as he said, re-quoting Jefferson, you, we're right. going to get the kind of leaders we deserve. Right. So we're in a system that rewards celebrity, so you're going to get celebrities. Right, right, right. right. And so I think for Gary, who's so serious and, and smart and believes in civic duty and people were getting involved and has ideas for how America can transform and was back in the 80s was talking about technology. He had lunch 
with Steve Jobs in the garage, you know, and then went back to the Senate. We've got to change everything. We're going to, we need mm -hmm. computers in every classroom. He said our addiction to oil is going to lead to wars in the Middle East that we don't know how to fight because our army's just got planes that bomb people. Like, so back in the 80s, he was saying that. I think it's heartbreaking for him yeah. to think of where we are today right. and what could have been avoided. Could have been so different. You know? And right. I think it's a real shame that his voice was, whether he's president or not, you right. know, and who knows what would have happened, but just the fact that his voice was lost to public life is such a shame. You're seen with the turbulence in the plane, I think yeah. probably most encapsulates. Mm. I wonder, you know, I guess everybody can interpret what that what that really says, but that, that one is terrific, the way you, you played it, and I think what it, Thank you. Suggests about him. And it's based on true True moment, anecdote. really, yeah. with the reporter, yeah. Yeah, he was very kind. Like, they used to, you know, it, it, when he was on the tour, he would be having whiskeys with the reporters at <laughs> night, and they would chat. And this was the beginning of the end. Of, yeah. You see, at the end of the film, no more. No more. There's none of that, you know. He said to me once, he says, I've never, ever said the phrase, can we keep this off the record? Right. He said, I never did that to a journalist. I mean, it must break your heart when you think about it. <laughs> he was uh, sort of an upfront guy, and those, unfortunately those times are gone. Final, final, final question. Yes. If you had not gotten the part of Wolverine all those years ago, right. where would you be right now? Mm. I, I just really have no idea. I probably would have done a little more theater. Mm -hmm. But I was already veering into film. I don't know. But it, the timing of Wolverine being so different to who I am mm -hmm. opened up the movie world to me in a way that if I got cast in something a little closer to who I am, I don't think it would have opened up. And by the way, and I hate to end this interview on this, it's the only time my wife has ever been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, she's always right. Always right. And she's actually grateful to say it. I'm fine. I was wrong on that one. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you, man. Thanks for all the work you did, too. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.